Amen. Well, uh, not sure, but uh, I wonder how many of you really agree with that. How many of you is at the prayer of your heart uh, better is one day in God's courts than thousands elsewhere? Thousands elsewhere. I'm not going to live to be a thousand, so... It's a pretty deep thought, right? And we think about that, and I think the closest thing we have to that here um, on this earth can be, depending on your background, um, our home. Longing for home. If you've been gone or on a trip or you want to come home. Um, I realize some of you may not have had that opportunity to have a home that you wanted to come to. Some of you may have, I grew up in a home I wanted to come to. And whether it was the smells of things being baked or just the feel of being loved and accepted or just knowing this was my place, that I'm, I'm secure. Uh, this is where I'm supposed to be. And, uh, you know, I went to college at the University of Indiana and uh, my brother went to Purdue and yet we went to high school in Hawaii and so uh, we'd only get to go home uh, at summer and Christmas. And so some Thanksgivings, we longed for home. But thankfully, once Randy met his bride, we got to go to her house, Erica's house, for Thanksgiving. They took care of us. But, uh, but yeah, we longed for home. And we had to get on that plane. And I know that a couple times we'd hit San Francisco, we'd get that offer, and it's two days before Christmas, and they're like, you get a $600 voucher. If you stay, we're going to bump you from the flight. Dad said, take that voucher. <laughs> Stay in that hotel. We did, but we longed to get home because we knew that it would be the smell of Christmas cookies and baking. And it was a place we longed to be. And so when we say heaven is our home, what does that feel like? And do we look forward to it? Uh, It's hard because we say heaven is our home, but we haven't been there yet. Usually your home is the place you go, and then when you leave it, you want to go back to and uh, just to be honest with you this morning, and real, uh, that's one of the things we value here, but this isn't easy, even as I speak this morning, this is not an easy message. I thought it would be when I planned it out, but then it, real, it hit me that it's Mother's Day and it's talking about heaven, and my mom talked about heaven more than anybody I've ever known. And she actually longed for it as her home, which I thought was quite strange growing up, that she would talk about it, longing to be at the feet of Jesus more than some of the things in this world. And, and it seems strange to, to hear somebody talk about heaven as their home. It's not that they want to end their life now. That it's like Paul said, I, I know I need to be here, but I long to be with the Lord. And she is now. And uh, that's part of the grief process. I guess it just hit me at my desk this week, and I was like, Tears were just running down my face. And uh, as I thought about and memories of uh, just started to overwhelm me about home and about heaven and, and what we look forward to. And, you know, I think that it's something we need to have in our hearts because the Bible refers to us as sojourners in this land, strangers, pilgrims, as citizens of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. You're not a citizen of the United States. That's your earthly identity. As soon as we come into Christ, 
family, that's our home. We have a family. We have an inheritance waiting for us. And that is what we have to look forward to. And yet, looking forward to heaven hasn't always been the case and often isn't the case for believers. There's so many things that we deal with and battle with and, and that are in front of us in our walk with the Lord. And I came across a Christian author and said this, it says, but inasmuch as the Bible gives us, un, gives us some limited information, I think it is futile to speculate on what heaven will be like. Instead, God wants us to concentrate our efforts on becoming Christ-like people in the here and now. That will prepare us to eventually become citizens of heaven. As an old saying warned us, he says, we don't want to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. Do you agree with that? I do not. (laughs) I did not like that quote. I understand what he's saying. We don't want to just sit there and dreaming of the clouds and and not stay on mission for the Lord. But I think one of the things that motivates us and gives us hope and joy in the midst of the ups and downs of this life is being heavenly minded. And so I would counter that and I would say followers of Jesus often aren't heavenly minded enough. We forget whose son and daughter we are. We forget our identity in Christ. We forget how awesome of a place is being prepared for you and I. And so I believe that we need to embrace a scripture-driven creativity and imagination. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to circle back and listen to online um, what Amy Lee shared with us and uh, what we talked about, about it's okay to imagine about heaven. And it's okay to dream and think about that. And God's given us creativity to create and think about the future and dream about it, not just here on earth, but beyond. And see, our imagination, however, starts from one place, and it does start from the Scriptures. God has given us some things to know about heaven and painted some pictures for us. So that we can reflect on not only the truth of who Jesus is, but the joy that's found in being his children. And the joy of knowing what lies ahead and the hope we have because this world is not our home. And so God has given us some information about heaven and that's the source and the launching point for our imagination. And part of this series has been is separating what is information from God and what is just part of our culture in the way I mean we use heaven in so many different ways you know I was reminded of the the song "Ooh, heaven is a place on earth Uh, if you grew up in my era you know the mall singer who made that song famous Um, we talk about a piece of chocolate being heavenly so I think we've lost a little bit of the touch of what it is like and what it means and so today For me, I want to connect heaven to being our home. And what do we say? We say home is what? Where your heart is. So we're going to talk about our hearts and connect our hearts to our home. And as we do that, um, 
we're going to look at the last chapters in Revelation. By the way, if you're ever going to preach Revelation, I'm doing like the absolute best way to do it. I just jumped to the final two chapters. So, so we're going to hit on that today. But I wanted to start with this from uh, Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. I want you to see how even the prophets of old before Jesus arrived, God was proclaiming what heaven would be like. So Isaiah 65, 17 through 19 says this, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing in her people, a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her nor the voice of crying. And so we enter into uh, the celestial city, into heaven. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up. Uh, We're going to be walking through verse by verse uh, in Revelation 21 is where we will begin. So this is written by John, the beloved disciple. And uh, as we understand history... (laughs) He was beaten, and like the other followers of Christ, the other apostles, and then he was put on this island of Patmos, and then this is where he got a vision, a picture from the Lord of what is to come. And uh, all of this is taking place. Christ has returned. He's reigned for a thousand years. Satan has been defeated. The judgment has happened. And now those who follow Christ, who are names are in the book of life, enter into the new heaven and new earth. And here's what John saw. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and they were no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for his husband, her husband. So as we look at that, we see that heaven is made by the Lord. Heaven is a a gift from God, a gift prepared uh, and given and brought down to us, a sign of of his goodness and joy and a celebration of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we understand this and we see this being brought down, we begin to understand that um, it's a new place. Now, there are different views taken on this. Some say, that this earth uh, will be uh, taken down to its core and then remade like this. Some say the old earth will be completely passed away and sent away and it will enter into a completely new creation by God. And as you'll find, I don't think that necessarily matters as much as what it's going to be like in the picture God gives us. And so I know that Romans 8 talks about all of creation groans and longs for the Lord's return. Because there's a curse over all of creation because of sin. And whenever the Lord comes back and he reigns, I mean, it's that great Christmas hymn we sing, right? That's written that he will remove everything. When Isaac Watts wrote this, he said, No more let sin and sorrows rain, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. 
Pastor Steve Lawson says, uh, whatever sin is touched and polluted, God will redeem it and cleanse it. If redemption doesn't go as far as the curse uh, of sin, then God has failed. Whatever the extent of the consequences of sin are, so is the extent of our redemption and our heavenly home. And it goes even, as we're going to see, above and beyond that. I love how C.S. Lewis described it in his book, uh, The Edge of Eternity. He says, this is it. The country for which I was made at last, the real world. I've been born. All my life on earth was but a series of labor pains preparing me for this. This is joy itself. Every foretaste of joy in the shadowlands was but a stab at the pang of the inconsolable longing for this place. How could anyone be satisfied with anything less than this? C.S. Lewis in his great series, Narnia, uh, which is an allegory that pictures heaven, uh, Aslan is a lion. I'm not ruining it for anyone, but he represents Jesus. <laughs> And finally, uh, this family, these kids, they they get there and they see Aslan again. And this is how he describes it. Um, And it says, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say, that they all lived happily ever after, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. And their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover page and the title. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and this is my favorite part, and in which every chapter is better than the last. And so it says this, it says that God will make his dwelling place with us. Look at verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, and he, for God is their God. And so... In heaven, we're going to have hearts um, that are healed. We are going to dwell with God. Our hearts had to be healed. We could not dwell with God since that garden, that paradise on earth, when we sinned. We are separated in our relationship with God. But it says God is going to make his dwelling place with us. It's no longer in a tabernacle or a temple or in Jesus who, who... hadn't shown his full glory yet, walking amongst us on earth, amongst the curse. No, we're going to be in the very presence of God for eternity, dwelling with God, and God dwelling with us together, completely together. It says, God will make a new heaven and new earth, uh, an author said, and he says, God dwells there in heaven, so then we shall continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. We will be with him. Heaven and earth will be one place. Jesus came down to us and dwelt among us. That's the miracle of Christmas. But the miracle of the resurrection is that we look forward to dwelling with him for eternity. 
I want you to listen to some of the greatest voices in history and how they focus on heaven. John Piper says this, If you could have all of heaven and everything you ever dreamed of being in heaven, would you still want it if Jesus is not there? Sam Rutherford says, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven for me. For thou art all the heaven that I want. Martin Luther says this. He said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Rick Warren, when asked uh, about his ideas on heaven, um, I paraphrase, he says, I've never embarked on a deep study of heaven because all I desire is to be with Jesus, and that is more than enough for me to be excited about getting to heaven. You know, going to heaven without Christ would be like a bride going on a honeymoon without her groom. <laughs> What's the point? We want to be with him. In John 17, 24, Jesus, in his final prayer, this awesome prayer that he gives, his prayer was, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus desires more than anything else that we behold him in his full, resurrected, fully alive, Holy redeemed glory, scars and all. And then we go on to read some of the most comforting verses, perhaps, in all of Scripture. Um, verse 4. Um, and then it says, God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, in heaven, we're going to have joy-filled hearts. Our hearts will be healed, and they will be full of joy. It's pretty hard to imagine, I think. This is, we try to imagine what it looks like, but, I mean, no more death, no more crying, pain, no more heartache. That's pretty amazing. I mean, you can just sit there and read that there should be no more mourning, no more crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. Let that sink in. It's hard to imagine a place like that right now, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty out there, but it's attainable, and God has purchased it for us. And there's a joy, and a joy not in just obliterating every bit of pain we've gone through, but a joy knowing it was all worth it. 
And I love how it says, listen to my words, because my words are trustworthy and true. And so we can know that that's what's going to happen. Why? Because Isaiah said it. Because all the prophets said what Jesus would do, and he did it. Because Jesus himself said what he was going to do, and it happened. And the disciples' lives were transformed, and lives have been transformed because Jesus is alive. And the words God has given us and protected, better than any historical document we've ever had in the Scriptures, tell us it. They're trustworthy and they're true. Don't let the world try and parse it apart and destroy your faith in God's Word. It is true. What God says, He will do. You know, that at this point, I, I think it's interesting if you've ever watched that show, uh, Extreme Home Makeover. It was really, really popular for a while. And uh, they take a home that was beaten up, torn apart, uh, often a touching family story. Um, and then at the end of the show, they'd have the reveal, right? And then what would they say? Move that bus. And they'd stand the ch- chanting. Right, and then they cut away to commercial. You come back and you see the couple. They can't even stand. They're on the street writhing and hugging. And Oh, it's our new home. <laughs> it's extreme home makeover. And so this is kind of the, the part in the Bible where we get a little glimpse and he says, move that bus. These next verses show us, uh, try to, at least in our own language, God's trying to communicate to us some of the beauty of what heaven will look like. And so as we look at verses uh, 9 through 27, I'm going to read through them all. And I want you to tap into your imagination and just in your own mind, think about, wow, what is this going to be like? And why does God choose to describe it in this way? Um, But allow yourself to dream a little bit and and imagine what you think it might be like. Uh, So verse 9, then came the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three great gates. And then on the wall of the city had twelve foundations. On them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city lies 400 square its length, the same as its width, four square its length. And he measured the city with his rod, and it was 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He measured its wall 144 cubits high by human measurement, which is also the same which is also an angel's measurement. I always thought the angels used the metric system, but apparently they uh, have their own system of measurement. That just struck me this morning. I'm like, uh, the angels use cubits. Okay, they have their own system. We'll explain what a cubit is in a minute, kids. It's okay. We'll get there. So we have this 144 cubits high. 
And it says the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. There was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were on the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gate made of a single pearl. That's a big pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, um, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is our home. <laughs> Isn't it amazing the size and the grandeur of which we can't even begin to fathom? I believe the size of the New Jerusalem, it speaks of God's majesty. His majesty. If you were to take literally these measurements, it would be about 396 stories tall and about 20 feet per story, each having an area as big as one half of the United States. If you were to put a big square and just place it in the United States right in the middle, uh, that would be the size that they're describing just of the new Jerusalem. Uh, Two million square miles, if you were to calculate it. About 1,400 uh, miles cubed, or over two million square miles. It offers plenty of room for glorified saints to live, I would say. Um, And yet, the size and the majesty of that shows the the generosity of our king in redeeming people. It also, uh, the beauty speaks of God's worth and purity. Uh, He described it to us, I believe, in human terms, just this idea of, man, this is a beautiful place. Uh, The best things this world has to offer, as impure as they are, um, are going to be there and be amplified. There'll be things that maybe we've never even seen there. And so, I think that it's important for us to understand this, this idea of purity and worthiness. Because Satan tries to, this world tries to allure us with things that it claims are beautiful. um, Get us to cling to these earthly things that in the end turn to dust and we can't take them with us. and They're temporary and the happiness they provide doesn't fulfill our hearts. There are many things we can pursue. I love the fact that the gates are open. God is completely accessible. God is accessible. He, you can come in and out of the city. Now, some of you grew up and you don't like city life. <laughs> I lived out in the country in Texas for a while and people are like, 
The last place I want to be for eternity is a city. Well, if that's you, I would just encourage you and say, guess what? Um, it's going to be all of the things of a city, but none of the disadvantages. No crime rate, no traffic jams, no drugs, no eroded city housing. These verses are meant to unleash our imagination, to dream and to wonder. And to imagine being with our Lord and Savior. If you jump into, um, as you begin to look here, as we move and we continue to look in the scriptures, um, it says this in verse 22, and perhaps my favorite verse. Uh, I kind of like rivers. Um, the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need for a lamp or sun, for, the God, for God himself will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It says, all the waters will be gone, and there will only be one river, the river of life flowing through this city. And so, we're going to have joy-filled hearts, but we're going to have satisfied hearts. As that song uh, we sang earlier, that we've tasted and we've seen, we're, come and give me that healing water. <laughs> that water that you drink and you don't thirst anymore. You are satisfied because you are in the very presence of God. Now, I love this. The environment's going to be completely new. Uh, the imagery of uh, this water and uh, a planet filled with greenery and yet uh, not the majority of it is not going to be ocean anymore. And even though we love the ocean and it's beautiful, God apparently has something uh, better and more amazing than that. But you see, there's no more night. <laughs> Think of all the things that come along with night. and We have to lock things up. We've got to close the gates at night. We've got to protect ourselves. Don't go to that place at night. Uh, bad things happen at night. There will be no more night. There will be only the brightness and the glory of Jesus lighting up the world. There'll be no more moving. We'll be at our home. There'll be no more transfers, no more deployments, no more borders. No more racism, no more sexism, no more division. I don't think our identities get erased, and we'll talk about that in our Q&A next week. In questions if you got them. But we will all be as one. I, I, I tend to believe we, we will all be as one and people will uh, retain, and somehow in our resurrected bodies, we retain our nationalities just showing the beauty of God's creation and, and the beauty of coming together as one. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I know it says here, all the nations will come together. Peace and harmony respect, and love for one another, all at the foot 
of Jesus Christ. Every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping him in unity. How beautiful will that sound? And how beautiful will that be? Now, if we look at scriptures beyond Revelation, we know that we're going to have whole hearts. Um, The resurrection has happened. We'll have our resurrected bodies. Our body and soul will be together. Uh, We'll be whole. It tells us that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the trumpet sound, the the dead in Christ will rise first. And, And so we look at this and we say, well, what are our bodies going to look like? We will be glorified. Well, the best picture and the only picture we really have of that is who? Jesus Christ, when he uh, rose from the grave and was resurrected and he walked around for that time, we began to maybe get some clues. Um, Some of them didn't recognize him at first, and then others were like, you're Jesus, and then they knew him. So I think he'll be known. Jesus um, ate some food, after he was resurrected, he had some fish on the beach. Uh, he also was able to show Thomas, doubting Thomas, he showed him his scars. They were still there. Um, I believe they're there to this day. So he's able to show them his scars. And uh, all the artists in the world actually get to see what Jesus actually looks like. And uh, we'll see how close our paintings really were. <laughs> but... We're going to have our bodies, and, and we're going to address some of the, the questions about that next week. It's kind of fun to try and think about what might that be like. Um, so I think we'll carry all five senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, feel, emotions. Maybe we'll have some more. Maybe there'll be some more colors added to our vision that we never even knew uh, this color existed um, But I think one important thing to note is I think we will continue to be male and female. Jesus was a man and is a man still today. He was resurrected as Jesus, the man. Now, as we're going to see once again next week, I keep teasing you to come uh, come back, but uh, our gender will remain, I believe, but the role in which God has it, some of those roles will have been fulfilled and completed. Because we are now the bride of Christ. Some of the pictures he had built into our relationships to help us long for him and give a taste of what heaven will be like will have passed away. Their purpose will have been gone. And yet, I believe that um, to put a broad stroke on it, I think we'll be able to think and learn. And remember this. Sometimes I think we jump ahead and we... Forget that Jesus is Jesus, the Son of God, and has the attributes of God. We are not going to become Jesuses. We aren't going to have all of the attributes of God. We won't be all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, all-present everywhere. Uh, We will be under God. And so some of the things Jesus has, uh, we will not have. And yet, we will be forever growing and learning about God and the depth of who he is and the beauty of his creation. Joni Erickson taught as an author, speaker, singer, artist, um, had an accident uh, when she was young um, and had a spinal cord injury, um, leaving her in a wheelchair. 
and unable to use her hands, and she was able to do some art with her feet. And uh, some of her ama- amazing writings, if you've never ri- read what she's written on heaven or just on suffering and trusting God. Um, this is what she says. She's a quadriplegic, and she says, I can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Or someone who is injured or has some sort of struggle physically in life? Autism, multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives to someone who is manic-depressive, somebody who struggles with anxiety. She says, no other religion, no other philosophy in the world promises new bodies, new hearts, new minds, only the gospel of Christ. And in it, do hurting people find incredible, lasting hope. I thought about that as I sat in my office (laughs) typing this out. I thought, is that somebody born blind at birth could it be that the first person that, and the first thing they ever see is Jesus? There's hope in the midst of this world. As we think about that, and we'll talk more and more about it, I think that one of the amazing things is, it says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, it says, When we are in paradise, Paul's talking, he says, Then I shall fully know, even as I also am fully known. I want you to think about that, to be fully known and to fully know yourself. So I think it would indicate we know who our friends and family are. We fully know who we are. There's no need for secrets in heaven. You don't have to hide things anymore. You can just be who God created you to be. What freedom is that? That's amazing to me. Randy Alcorn wrote um, this novel, The Edge of Eternity, and it was uh, designed to you know, just kind of express creatively a longing for heaven. And uh, he says this, um, Nick Seagrave is one of the main characters, and he beholds the woodsman who is Jesus at the end of the world. And it says this, it says, I saw a dying cosmos hold out its weak right arm, longing for a transfusion for its cancerous chasm it was stuck in. I saw the woodsman holding what appeared to be a tiny lump of coal, the same size as the blue-green marble he'd held before. The woodsman squeezed his hand and the world around me darkened and just as I felt I would scream for the unbearable pressure, the crushed world emerged from his grip, a diamond. I gasped in air in relief. I saw a new world once more, life-filled, blue-green, the old black coal delivered from its curse and pain and shame, wondrously remade. It looked so easy, for the woodman to shape it with his hands. But then as I came closer and I saw the scars, I realized it wasn't easy at all and I remembered it was not. One of the greatest things about heaven is when we understand the cost. 
It's only through the gospel of Christ do we discover that that's our home. And God could have just snapped his finger and gotten rid of all the sin and given us our just due punishment and moved on. But he chose to go through a painful process because he loves you and wants to give you a chance at redemption. And so when we think about heaven as our home, sometimes I think about, and our family's been thinking about the sacrifice over the years of family members and relatives uh, we've looked up recently that sacrificed in order for us to be here today and make a better way for us. Jesus did that. He sacrificed everything. He gave up heaven and came down amongst us so that we could mock him, scorn him, beat him, hang him on a cross to die and so that his Father, his heavenly Father, could pour out the wrath of sin upon him. A punishment I can't even fathom. So that he could go and prepare a place for us. So that where he is, we may also be in our true home. Let's pray.